just make yourself at home. You, there, there are no strangers here, just friends we haven't met yet. And if this is your first time, you can call yourself a visitor. After that, you're just part of the family. And we're, we're glad to be able to say that. So has everybody had a great Thanksgiving? Yes. How did it go? How did it go? You survived, OK. How many of you survived Black Friday? You did the Black Friday thing, in other words. Say, what is the Black Friday thing? Well, that's that day when you push and shove so you can spend money you don't have on things you don't need to impress people you don't like. And and it's funny, it it falls exactly one day after being so thankful for what you already have. (laughs) Never been able to figure that out. Yeah, boy, we're thankful. Oh, man, yeah, wait till tomorrow. We're going to get some more stuff. Um, Yeah. Thanksgiving and and con- being contented don't seem to be uh, in the same in, in the same vocabulary for, what, for whatever reason. Let me jump right in this morning. Todd and I are um, beginning a three-part series starting today that'll lead into the Christmas celebration, which uh, we're going to just simply be calling it Christmas 2015. And uh, so, if you have uh, if you're trying to keep notes today. It's going to be really um, easy and uh, succinct, and hopefully uh, next week we'll pick up on the theme. So I'm going to get it kicked off today with a message for you simply entitled, Encouragement and Command. Uh, If you have your Bible with you this morning, or you have your tablet or your phone app, whatever you use, if you'd turn to Psalm 139, that would be a big help for you, because uh, that's where we're going to be camping for a while today in and out of there. I read the story of a student in a, in a certain Christian college who, he was running late for his early morning class. I don't know how many of you did college classes, but, you know, those 8 o'clock classes, or even some of them at 7 o'clock in the morning, those, that, I think, was to test you to see whether you really were college material. I never could figure out if there was any value to those classes. I don't remember anything about them, to be honest with you. But anyway, this guy's making a mad dash to get to his early morning class, and uh, the class had already started, and as they always did every day, they started with a prayer, and so uh, they were kind of in the middle of the opening prayer when he stumbled in, panting still because he'd been running across campus, and, and his arms are loaded with books. You can kind of picture this scene, and the prayer just continued after he came in. It just kept going on, and as he attempted to sit down, of course, all of his books fell on the floor all over the place, and he sat down in his seat, and as he bent down to pick up his books and his papers and everything else that had fallen... One leg of his chair was hanging out over a step down, and you can imagine what happened there, those old college uh, chairs with the desk on them. Uh, That went over, and so did the rest of that chair, and so did the student in the chair. And once again, he's picking up papers, and he's picking up books, and everything that went flying. And uh, so after he took this unplanned trip to the floor, he regathered himself, and and he picked everything up, and just as he was sitting in his seat comfortably and kind of in class finally, he heard the amen at the end of the prayer. And he opened one eye and looked up at the professor and he said, uh, did, did I miss anything? To which the professor replied, yes, the ceiling. <laughs> he hit everything else. He just didn't hit the ceiling. So this morning I'm starting a new series that's gonna, that will take us up to Christmas, and I don't want you to miss 
any of it. I don't want you to come in in the middle of it. I don't want you to come in uh, when we're praying and we didn't say amen yet. I want you to get it all, and I want you to get it from this starting point. By the way, this starting point is a starting point that most people don't use, and we're going to back way, way up beyond what you know as the traditional Christmas story. This series, as I already told you, has three parts, and we're going to build one on the other uh, for the most part. I want you to remember that because, after all, it's almost December. Do you know how, do you know how dangerously close it is to December? Yeah. And you're expecting to hear things from here on out. Things about Jesus as a little baby. You're expecting to hear about wise men. You're expecting to hear about shepherds in the fields. And you're expecting to hear all of that Christmas stuff. And we'll probably get there before this series is over. But I want you to follow along as we start on a, on a foundational piece this morning. And some of you will be asking, even after I'm done this morning, you'll be saying, so where's the Christmas and all of that, everything he was talking about? If you're asking that, that's great because it's going to engender some good discussion and you're going to be able to have some good conversations and you're going to be able to dig and get into the word and get the answers for your questions. But I again say just follow along. Uh, I want to answer an even bigger question than that one. I want to ask, where is God in this Christmas? Now, maybe you ask that question every December. As you get out on, into the streets and into the stores and into the, the, the hustle and bustle and, and, and all the rest of it for the season, maybe, maybe Christmas is harder than any other, and maybe this Christmas even more so than others, maybe, than, maybe harder than anyone you've ever faced. And, and it has you asking that question, where is God? Isn't this about God? Isn't this all about Him? And that's the question I'm hoping we can answer and answer thoroughly. And I said I was going to back you up. Let me do that. You see, Israel was asking a similar question. If you go back in Bible history, you'll see that for 430 years, they had been slaves in Egypt. Just imagine it. 20-some generations of people who knew nothing about a slave's life. They had no inkling of any other kind of living or existence. And I imagine some of them by that 400th year were asking, where is God? Or maybe they were even asking, who is God? Or maybe they were even asking, is there a God? So one day in the Sinai Desert, God used a very interesting object lesson. Namely, a burning bush, a bush that burned and was not consumed. And he used that burning bush to help Moses become better acquainted with him, with God. Matter of fact, that was the day that Moses was informed that he was to go and command. Just think of this now, 400 plus years in slavery. God is speaking to Moses on the backside of the desert through a burning bush. And he lets him know that the command is he is to tell the Pharaoh of Egypt to let God's people go, finally. I tried to think of an analogy, and the only thing I could come up with was 
It's kind of like telling some person on the streets of Pyongyang that he's been chosen to rid the world of North Korea's Stalinist dictator, King, uh, Kim Jong-un. That would make about as much sense. Can I just tell you, Moses had no interest whatsoever in leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. He couldn't have been less interested. So he keeps searching for this reason, like, what is this? What's happening here? I shouldn't be the one that God chooses. He certainly has the wrong address this time. And then he tries to shift the burden to God. That's an interesting conversation. I'd like to delve into it someday with you. What if they ask, he says to God, what if they ask who it is that's sending me? What if they ask who, who, who commissioned me on, on this particular mission? What will I say? Who will I say send me? I don't even know your name. Do you have a name? God answered, Yahweh, meaning I am. And it's from the Hebrew meaning to be. So Moses, this, is a, this makes a lot of sense to you, doesn't it? And to the superficial reader, it would. So Moses, tell them, I am sent you. Don't you think Moses at that point must have really felt fortified and ready to go? I'm going to Pharaoh and I'm telling him that the I am sent me. Not making a lot of sense so far. But it's as though, and you have to analyze that name. It's as though God is saying through that name, I am the being one. In other words, existence itself, and if you miss this, you've missed it all. Existence itself finds its definition in me. Now, let's back that up with some scripture. And I'm going to give you, those of you that know, I'm going to give you references this morning. I'm not going to give you text on the screen. So you'll have to do your homework. The first text that I will go to is John chapter 1, verse 3. And it says there, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In Acts 17, 28, it says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Can I just tell you that it's in him that you live today, that you move, that you have your being? In other words, you have your existence. Now that I am, meaning to be, is starting to make some sense. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the writer says, The Son, S-O-N, is sustaining all things made by his powerful word. And in Revelation 4, 11, God, you created all things. And by your will, they were created, and they have their being. You know, Hamlet struggled, if any of you are, uh, are Shakespearean, uh, if you're interested in Shakespeare at all, and you, you know Hamlet. Hamlet's great line was, I'll start it, I bet you can finish it. To be or not to be. And uh, I want to say to Hamlet, dream on. Dream on, because that to be or not to be isn't up to you. Look, everything that is and everything we can know of owes its very being to God. Bill Hybel several years ago preached the message, and he asked the question in the message, how do we know there's a God? And Bill Hybel said there are four reasons. Number one, only God could create a universe out of nothing. That's a good reason. Secondly, universal order could not happen 
without design. Thirdly, credible people demonstrate the born-again experience. I like that one. And fourth, Bill said, it's mid-September at the time it was, and the Cubs are in first place. (laughs) How do we know that there's a God? How do we know that he exists? God is there. I'm just going to say this over and over until somebody here gets it. But God is, no matter where there is, God's there. God's always there. You say, I've been some places this week. I don't think God would. God's there. He said, you don't know my life. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the rabbit trails that I followed. You don't know the side tracks. You don't know the detours. I don't need to know. I'm just going to tell you something that's a fact. God is there. Say, well, I don't know if you know where I'm going to be this week, or you know what I'm going to be doing this week, or you know who I'm going to be with this week. doesn't matter. God is there. It's only three words. Let's say it together so we can get it punched in to our computer this morning. God is there. No matter what happens, what? God is there. No matter where we go, what? God is there. Now, we're going to use that to kind of lay the foundation this morning. If you want to have a reason to celebrate Christmas, you say, well, no, we just do it. It's a tradition. We do it every year. It comes around every 12 months. It starts earlier every year. It lasts longer every year. And I get more tired of it every year. But we do it because it's a tradition and we've got to do it. Because Christmas is Christmas and oh, we all love it and blah, blah, blah. So if you want to have a reason this year, to celebrate Christmas. You have to get that one fact straight. What's the fact? God is there. The basic, and you say, what is, that, what is that punching, Bob? That's saying that the basic truth of God's existence is the foundation of our biblical worldview. The very fact that he exists. If we believe that God is there and I think you do, because you just said it to me four times. It affects everything you believe about life. Stop and analyze that for a minute. Take a moment. Don't be rushing ahead of me. Just stop and analyze that. If I really believe that God is there, no matter what, no matter where, no matter the circumstance... That, was, that is going to affect everything I believe about life. Not most things, not some things, not a few things, everything. David believes it, certainly when he penned this psalm that we call the 139th. He's expressing to God some of what that belief means for him. In Psalm 139, starting at verse 7, I'm going to read a few verses, 7 through 10. David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Have you ever said that to God or to yourself? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. I want to just put it in my own paraphrase. There ain't no escape in this God. He's the God who is there. Now, we've all kind of agreed on that. Now, I don't get that message from the typical Christmas marketplace, do you? 
This is a basic tool for survival. I don't want you to, to just think about celebrating Christmas because it's a tradition that you have. I want it to be meaningful. So you're going to have to get into a survival mode, first off, just to, just to filter all this stuff that's coming at you and will be coming at you in the next three weeks. It's something that everyone needs because God is there. I'm going to give you this morning three words of encouragement, and I'm going to give you a word of command, and I'm going to lift them right off the page of Psalm 139 this morning. And I'd almost guarantee, I say almost because I don't know all your backgrounds, that nobody in this room has ever heard a Christmas message with a text from Psalm 139. Luke 2, or somewhere in Matthew, or something from the Pauline letters, something about the coming of Christ and the power of Jesus and all the rest of it, and that's all great, and I'm not putting any of that down as you would well expect, but when's the last time you heard a Christmas message from Psalm 139? Fasten your seatbelt, because God's there. And because God's there, listen, life has purpose. I've just been waiting for days to say this. Because God is there, we all agreed, God is there. Life, therefore, has purpose. I'm told that a few years back, and I have to be told because I'm not too up on this stuff. I'm told that a few years back, Calvin Klein produced a fragrance called, it was just one letter. Does anybody know what what it was called? B, the letter B. Yeah. And their ads always said, be this, or be that, or be something else, because of their new fragrance. We live in a world, I was thinking about this lately, we we, we live in a world that is caught up in exerting our own existence, like it seems like people, no matter, I'm a great sports follower, and I, and I, always, get, I always get worked up when I hear people say, well, now we won that game, we just have one more to go, and we control our own destiny now. Nobody controls their own destiny. Nobody's in charge of how life's going to go. Nobody's in charge of what's going to fall out along the road or what's going to cave in along the road. But we're caught up, we're consumed, and I'm afraid sometimes Christians are involved in this group. We're concerned, we're just consumed with this idea of exerting this great influence or uh, our own existence is such a, is so powerful, it's so necessary. Every crazy notion that people come up with to just stand out is another attempt to say, I am. See, I am, I'm self-made. I am. I can handle it. But only God has the right to be called I am. Only God has that right. Because he is the being one. And without him, nothing exists. He's the one who is. And beyond that, it seems that God has made us for something other than just to exert our own existence. And it all keeps pointing back to him. If you were to go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13 and really take a look at that and maybe take note of it if you've got your notes going here. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says this. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. This is a wise man speaking here. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. 
For this, I love this, is the whole, W-H-O-L-E, duty of man. Boy, could it be simpler? Fear God, reverential trust and fear, and obey his commandments. It's not even a three-part sermon, that one. That's only two. Just fear God, respect God, have reverence towards God, what that means, and then obey his commandment. That's the whole duty of man. That's the whole purpose of our existence. So our purpose, I'm going to break it down a little more and keep drilling here. Our purpose for being, then, is relationship with God. Say, you say, I don't know what I'm here for. I don't know why I'm, I'm, I even exist. I don't know. Well, I'll tell you then. Since you asked the question, let's just get to the answer. Let's not play around. Your purpose for being is relationship with God. That is why you're here. You take God out of the picture. Just take him out of the picture of your life. And where are you? You're where at least half the people you run into in the store are. You're where all the non-Christian friends are. They're celebrating Christmas. They aren't sure why. They know they exist. They don't know why. They don't even know where they're headed, but they're really making good time getting there. What if somehow one of those people, and probably some people ran through your head as I made those statements, what if one of those people were to hear from you that life does have a purpose? What if they were to see it? in your countenance? What if they were to see it in the way you live your life? What if they were to hear it in the words you speak? Christmas, oh man, Christmas gives us an unbelievable window of opportunity that we don't have other times of the year, people, because others are out there looking at reminders that Jesus was born, and that's about as religious as it gets for most of them, and they sing the carols, and they hear the songs, and they, they, they see what's going on, but they're fixed on Jesus was born, which is great. That's the start of a great message. But I wonder what message you're sending. Are you sending Christmas cards this year? How many of you still do Christmas cards? Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think that many people did. Don't just send a season's greeting. Look, put in a word on behalf of God that Christmas is about the day that God took on human flesh and he lived among us and identified with us. Don't just give another obligatory Christmas present. You give that to someone just because it's a polite thing to do. I encourage you not to get into that. Give them a present and use it to explain God's present or gift to all of us. Explain to them why we exchange gifts. What is it a picture of? Don't be afraid. Tell people. Tell them there is a God who is there. Tell them there is a purpose to their life that the only way they'll ever be fulfilled is by having a relationship with their creator God, the one who made us. And you know what he made us? Human beings, not human doings. See, our, our stress, the whole world has the stress on do this, do this, do this, do, 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 do. And all through the word of God, God is calling us to be because we're human beings, not human doings. 
You see, when we are who God intends for us to be, we will do what God intended for us to do. We will live the life that God intended for us to live. So God is there. That means life has purpose. Life has purpose leads me to a second thing which I want to just touch on today. Because of that purpose, there is a standard now of right and wrong. I know this is lost teaching in a lot of churches, and it's just ignored by a lot of preachers. In a lot of places in America and around the, the Western world, a few years back, I'd say over the last couple of decades, a lot of things that used to be called the annual Christmas this or that, parade or party or school function or whatever, now it's the holiday parade or function or party or whatever. And why? Because that sounds more PC. Mm. So, welcome to the holiday season. Now, we used to call it Christmas, but in case we were to offend someone, we can't do that anymore. Uh, We used to even put up nativity scenes in public places, but now... Even before Halloween arrives, did you notice it this year? We are very tactfully blending it into Thanksgiving, and that whole last month and a half of the year has now become the holiday season. Never heard such a thing growing up. Never heard such a thing. After all, we wouldn't want to offend the Jews. We wouldn't want to offend the Muslims. We wouldn't want to offend the atheists. We wouldn't want to offend the women. We wouldn't want to offend the spotted owl. I mean, we just got to go right down our list. We got to make sure we don't offend anybody or anything, living, dead, or otherwise. And then there's a book called Politically Correct Christmas Stories. Yeah, there are titles, subtitles like Rudolph the Nasally Empowered Reindeer. Frosty the person of snow, and it was the night before winter solstice. People, we need to pay attention to what's going on here. What's going wrong with Christmas? And a lot of people are going to say this over and over ad nauseum, but it goes deeper. A lot of people are going to say, well, what's wrong with Christmas is it's been so commercialized. It's all about the dollar. Let me just tell you, what's wrong with Christmas right now goes a whole lot further than being just about a dollar. We are where we are as a society largely because the church has endured the senseless drivel that we can't force any standard on the world. Stay with me because I don't want to veer off into some kind of legalistic rant here. Instead, we openly tolerate anyone's standard. You have a right to believe what you want as long as it doesn't step too much on my freedom and you have the right to do what you want in the privacy of your own home and when two people uh, do whatever they do together is their business as long as both of them agree to it and stay out of that. So the world and the church's current failure to oppose what's wrong, no matter what it is, Instead, it's to be tolerant, and it starts with a denial that there is a clear and authoritative standard, and that standard, this is important, that standard is much higher than man, and it's the absolute true standard. See, here's the problem. A lot of churches don't 
don't get into any of this kind of stuff because they just say, well, we don't want to impose our standards on anyone else. I don't want to impose my standards on anybody. I don't even want to think of that. But I also can stand before you today and tell you, not for one second am I going to stop believing what the Word of God says, and not for one second am I going to excuse anyone, or myself included, for not holding up the standard of the Word of God. Let me put it another way. If God didn't exist, awful thought, isn't it? If God didn't exist, if there were no being who was present everywhere and who knew everything and who had all power, then everyone would have to admit there is no right to say who's right. There was no God, no ultimate authority, no high power person who's made the rules and expects people to keep the rules, who are you to tell me what's right or wrong for that matter, and who am I to tell you? As long as the place we're looking is somewhere among ourselves, we'll never get it right, the standard of right and wrong. Never. Because somebody's going to say, that maybe I've said it to you, I've had lots of people say it to me, well, who gives you the right? But if the standard of right and wrong is not from ourselves, if it's from a source that's beyond all of us, that's higher than any of us, then there's something we have to accept. We accept it or we reject it. So is our world ready? Then here's my question. It's 2015. It's clearly 2,000 plus years since the coming of Christ. And I want to ask now, in, in, the, in the modern <clears throat> day, in, in this age where we are, is our world ready to hear something like the truth of the Christmas story? It seems like, if you listen to the news every day, it seems like we couldn't be further away from being ready. <laughs> and this is the furthest we've ever been. But I, I, I want to turn that around a little bit. I, I want to explain to you that when Jesus came to this world, came to this earth, the Roman world was ready for truth. Look, they had borrowed the gods of the Greeks. They didn't have their own gods. In some places, they had so many statues and false gods on every street corner, and most of them they didn't even know who they were or what they represented or how we were supposed to worship them, that they even in some towns had one big statue, and it was called the Statue to the Unknown God. Because we think we've covered them all, but in case we haven't, we've got to put up one humongous statue here, and that's the Statue of the Unknown God. Wouldn't you love to worship every week at the Statue of the Unknown God? Because we don't know who he is. We don't know if he is. We don't know where he is. We don't know what he does. But just in case he's out there, this is the street corner you need to be on. I'm telling you, the Roman Empire was ready for the come. Shouldn't surprise us. This is our God thing. It's all about God. They had borrowed gods from the Greeks. They were worshiping these beings, these things that were morally bereft, 
they were glamorizing all kinds of immorality and all of this worship thing they were doing could easily be overpowered and, and overthrown. And they found the idea of worshiping something that had weaknesses to be wanting. They kept wanting more. They kept searching for more, never finding it, never getting it, never understanding any of this. And so the scripture says, and you've probably heard the scripture and wondered, like, why is that a verse in the Bible? Well, it's starting to come to light, I hope. It says, when the right time came, some... Uh, Some versions of the Bible say, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin. The time was right, the first century for Jesus to come, because the world was coming to its senses about the emptiness of worshiping something that wasn't beyond itself. And even for the Jewish people in the the empire, see how fast, how quickly they converted to follow Christ, to become open Christ followers, even at the threat of losing their lives. Because they had hungered for something for all these years. They knew there was a truth out there somewhere, but they couldn't, they just couldn't get a hold of it. And finally, when it it started moving and it started propagating the land, that it started going, it went like wildfire. Read the book of Acts and see how fast it grew. It grew by dozens, then by hundreds, then by thousands, then by tens of thousands. Then the Bible uses an interesting word. It grew by myriads. And myriads are multiples of tens of thousands, all in a matter of a few short years. Why? Because these people were so hungry. They had been without the truth so long. And now they were moving towards truth and fulfillment and purpose in life. I look around, and I see a lot of people who've tried the idea of worshiping things apart from God. And they, too, are finding it wanting. Because God is there, we can say there's a standard of right and wrong apart from ourselves. That's why we don't accept false teaching. That's why we don't apologize for calling a lie a lie and the truth the truth. Don't ever apologize for that. The standard isn't from us. We didn't invent the standard. We can't reinvent it. It exists apart from us in the God who is there. And God is there. And because of it, I want to give you the the third encouragement, and that's God's call to holy living or to a holy life. I want to give you a Bible quiz this morning. How many up for a quiz? It won't count on the final exam, I promise. Uh, Just see if you have any of the answers. It starts with a general question, and the general question is, where did they think God was when they did it? And of course, the first one, pretty obvious, Eve. Where did she think God was when the serpent deceived her and she ate the fruit? Did she think God was in some other part of the garden and didn't know what she was doing? Sometimes you have to take your Bible knowledge a little deeper and ask more introspective questions and say, well, what, what, I wonder about this. <laughs> what was going through her head? Where where did she think God was? 
And not to put it all on Eve, what about Adam? When Eve gave him the fruit, did he think God was lost in the woods somewhere? Huh? The main forest service was out looking for him? Were they going to find him? So I can do whatever now. I don't have to obey those commands that he gave us. Where, 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 where was God? What did they think? What were they thinking? And I know it'll never happen, but boy, that's something I'd like to ask the two of them. <laughs> what were you thinking? You were living in the Garden of Eden. You were destined for eternity, never to die, never to be sick. No wonder eating all that health food, right? Right? Oh, yeah, that's right. It's not health food season right now, is it? No, okay. Not after that Thanksgiving meal. Not after that Christmas candy that's coming up. I hear you. But wouldn't you like to ask Adam and Eve, like, what were you thinking? You blew it for all of us. And I don't care about all of us. You blew it for me. <laughs> what? Where do you think God was? Where, where, let's take Cain when he murdered Abel. And then, and then God said, well, where's your brother? He said, I, I, don't, I don't know where he is. Come on. What is going through your mind, Cain? Where do you think God is? Easy to laugh at them now, isn't it? What about Jonah? This is classic. He boards the ship, and he tries to run away from God, directly opposite, diametrically opposed to what God had just told him to do and the direction in which he had told him to go. Turned and went the exact opposite way, because why? He knew better than God. You and I do, too, most of the time, right? So he boarded a ship. He tries to run the other way. Did he think that he left God back on the pier in Joppa? Did he think once that ship set sail that that was it? I'm, I don't have to mess with God anymore. He won't be giving me a hard time. He's back there in Joppa. He's still standing on the pier. Is that? I don't know. I'd like to ask Jonah. What were you thinking? What about Judas? When he agreed to betray Jesus, did he figure that God never hung out among the chief priests? So he could go to them and tell them the plot and get this money and, and deceive Jesus and betray him right in front of the chief priests and God wouldn't even know about it because God didn't have any time for the chief priests? I don't know, but I can't come up with anything else. I, where, where, what were they thinking? Where did they think God was? And I have one other example from the book of Acts, and that's Ananias and Sapphira. They plotted together to lie to the church about an offering that they gave. They gave a nice offering, but they didn't give what they were commanded to give. And Ananias came in and lied about it, and immediately the Holy Spirit struck him dead. And Sapphira, instead of coming clean, told the same story that Ananias did, trying to back up that lie. And she was promptly told by the apostles, uh, you've just told the same lie that your husband did, and your demise will come. Matter of fact, they're coming in right now to carry your body out. Where did Ananias and Sapphira think God was when they concocted this crazy story and stood in front of the men of God and lied, bald-faced lied? Yeah, I'd like to ask them. I could go on and on and on, but let me just say, 
A lot of crazy people in the Bible, right? Right? You ever read your Bible and said, some of these people, wow, wow, wow. And so as I make that statement, let me just keep going here. I, 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 I'm glad you and I, well, we're never so presumptuous. We're never so naive. Huh? As to assume that something we do or something we say escapes the notice of God. Huh? What if we were to personalize it this morning, not naming names? I'll just say you, whoever it applies to. When you did whatever it was you did, remember a year ago? Remember two years ago? Remember 20 years ago? Remember a week ago? Remember uh, yesterday? Now, your parents weren't there, and your spouse doesn't know, and your boss is away. Do you just think God was looking the other way? Do you just think that got by the notice of God? Did you think you were someplace God couldn't see you? God couldn't hear you? Where would that be? Read Psalm 139. Read Psalm 51. Was it some time of the day? Ah, there's a certain time of the day. I think God goes on break and he wouldn't be watching me. And that's my time to hit. I'm being facetious, obviously. Listen to Jeremiah 23, 23, and 4. Wow. He asked the question of himself. God says, am I a God only, a God nearby, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so I cannot see him? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? So where can you go then and not be noticed by God? And let me make this statement, because everybody that I've ever encountered needs it. There is power in accountability. And let me repeat it if you didn't catch it. There is power in accountability. Here's why. Just knowing that someone you love or someone you respect is watching you and looking out for you, and, and they've got your back, affects the way you act. Now we need to take it up a step if only we could remember that about God. There is power, I'm going to say it again, in accountability. We've done a lot of accountability ministry, we know. There's power, isn't there, in accountability. By the way, I'm going to ask you this. Do you have an accountability partner in your life? A spiritual accountability partner. That, I'm not going to point to anybody, but that's the, that's the person you go to. Can I just say this? Come hell or high water. Doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter where you are in life. Doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, who you've been with, how many times you've repeated that same thing. Doesn't matter. Do you have an accountability partner that will listen, realizes they have two ears and one mouth for a reason? They can do twice as much listening as they can blabbing, and they can listen to you. And they can advise you where necessary. And you them. And you feel totally confident, totally comfortable, 
and totally safe. By the way, if you don't have an accountability partner, I highly recommend it. Say, oh, I have my wife. I don't recommend that. I have my husband. I really don't recommend that. <laughs> Women can't keep secrets, and men are even worse. <laughs> if it has to do with their own marriage, you'll never get the real story. Get an accountability partner that's outside of that intimate circle and develop that accountability. You will not regret it. There is power in accountability. You see, there's another person in the Old Testament besides David, and I love David. He's writing this psalm. But there's somebody in the Old Testament that I like even more, and some of you have heard me say it over the years. I think I've said it now every year for 42 years. I love the man Joseph. I love him. I love him. I love him. Matter of fact, he's the only character in the Bible that I can find. There, there are one or two others, but uh, like Achan, but um, boy, I'll tell you, Joseph lived an active life, and yet there's no, there's no description of any kind of immorality, anything questionable, any kind of sin. I'm not saying there wasn't, because we're all born sinners, but Joseph is my man. He really is. He had a chance to do some things that nobody else would ever find out about. <laughs> Joseph... He was, in, he was in Pharaoh's house. He was in the second highest position in the land, my friend. He was the prime minister of Egypt, so to speak, right? He was propositioned by his boss's wife. But Joseph knew something that we all should know, and we've said it this morning. No matter where he was, God was there. The God who has searched us and who knows us. The God who perceives our thoughts from far off. The God who discerns our going, oh, God's not in. Look at all the trouble in the world, Bob. Look at all the unsaved people. Look at all blah, blah, blah. He doesn't even know I exist. He so much knows you exist that he has numbered every hair on your head. He so much exists that he's closer than the nearest relative you have. He so much exists that he's closer, listen to this, than the next breath you're going to draw. <gasps> That's pretty close. And he is so close to you and so aware of you. And so, listen, he has named every one of the gazillion stars in all the universes. I think he'd know your name. And he cares about you. And he wants you to know that he's watching over you, but he's not standing there with a hammer ready to just nail you the next time you just step out of line. That's not the kind of God we serve, folks. He's a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of kindness and a God of love. I'm so glad, aren't you? Here's what Joseph said when he was in the hour of his greatest, greatest temptation. And you're, you're, you're reading it there in Genesis, and you're saying, no, don't, no, don't, no, 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 cut and run. Here's what he said. Here's what he said. These are his words. He said, how could I do this great wickedness, listen to this, listen to this, and sin against God? 
Well, boy, you've been tempted in your life, so haven't I. But I want to tell you, those are the words of somebody who realizes that God sees them. He realizes that even if his father didn't know, even if the people of his family never found out, so what? God knew. See, we try to keep secrets from all these people, but it doesn't matter what they know or don't know. God knows it all. See, realizing God is there. See how important that is now? No matter where there is, places on you the necessity of living a life of holiness because God is there and he knows and he's watching and he cares about you. This is, not a, this is not a death sentence. This is not a, oh, there's the end of your fun type of trip at all. This is freeing. This is purposeful. This is meaningful living. This is fulfillment. This is joy unspeakable and full of glory. You know that whole concept of Santa Claus? I, I could say how many don't like Santa Claus and how many like Santa Claus and some churches preach against Santa Claus and all that, but whatever. I'm a believer. Follow my thinking. Because he sees you when you're sleeping. And he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So, yeah. yeah, I got you now. I finally got something spiritual that you can, yeah, it took a while, about a half hour, but we got there. Yeah. So whoop-de-doo and dickety-dock, and don't forget to hang up your sock, because just exactly at 12 o'clock, he'll be coming down the chimney. That clever approach was invented by parents to get their children to behave if they want to be rewarded. Guess where those parents got the idea? From the scripture. From the scripture. Because Santa Claus was made almost to be like a God figure. Matter of fact, he's still Saint Nicholas in some traditions. Because his parents knew that the Bible taught concerning the God who was there, that he's always watching us. And you can sing that song, and I'll probably sing it ten times this Christmas. But you know what? Every time I do, I'll be thinking not so much Santa's watching. Because God is there. God is. God is. And because of that, we should live a holy life. No matter where there is. No matter where your there is. Living the holy life. So, three words of encouragement. And then, uh, fourthly, because God is there, we don't have to fear. By the way, I was just thinking of this earlier this morning. Do not fear is in the Bible 365 times. So, in 2016, you're going to have to use one of those twice. Because we're going to fall one short in the leap year. Did anybody follow what I just said? Okay. It's 365 days of the year. There are 365 promises in the Bible that say, do not fear. What do you see? What do you, is that coincidental? See, it might be to you, but it isn't to me. To me, God's saying, I've got to do not fear for every day of your year. So don't fear. And that's why I gave you the warning. In 2016, you're going to have to use one of those do not fears twice. So it's fear, on the one hand, versus confidence in God. 
And this is my word or my command or the command of God that I want to share with you. This Psalm 139, uh, Psalm 139 is a psalm of what we call reverent fear. But it's also a psalm of confidence in God. The idea that God knows all about us and goes anywhere we go. I- I've watched people literally pull up stakes and move <clears throat> to another city or another town or another state or across the nation. And it was very clear to me that they were running from God or from their problems. And it was also very clear to me after they had gotten to the new place and somewhat settled that they realized that the problems, Satan and God, all have a faster moving company than they did because they got there first and they didn't run away from anything. Again, it's such a simple principle. Why? Because God is there. Where is there? doesn't matter. And the people who decide they're going to run or they're going to stuff it or they're going to just, uh, they're going to smother it, they're going to forget that it ever happened. If I forget enough times, then I guess it never happened. doesn't matter where your where is. God is there. So this psalm, it's one, I say as you go into the Christmas season, it's one you might want to read like maybe once a week at least and just kind of get the whole feel and make it personal. It's that idea that God knows everything about you. No matter where you go, he goes. And just stop there for a minute. He knows all about me. And everywhere I go, he goes. And everything I think, he's already knows, he knows what I'm thinking. Before I say it, he's heard it. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Is that, that's kind of scary to me. Because I'm just sitting, standing here thinking of all the stupid things I've done. All the times I thought, oh, well, I'll just do this. That'll be apart from my walk with God. Or apart from my spiritual existence. Now, I'm not talking about when you were six years old and your brother baked a pan of sticky Pillsbury rolls and you pulls them out of the oven and sticks his finger in the hot caramel and dances around the, wor- the, the whole kitchen screaming and you go stick your finger in it too, which is kind of stupid. And, and, and I don't mean allowing your family to take your picture when you're in a costume going to a madrigal dinner or maybe going to Relay for Life, Chris Staples, wherever you are. And the rest of your life, you have to listen to your son say, Hey, Dad, remember that time you wore a dress? <laughs> Those are the stupid things we do, but they're, they're innocent. I think God must send, spend a lot of time chuckling over those things, just like you and I just did. But I'm not talking about the, those things. I'm talking about the morally stupid things. May have gotten us in trouble, may have gotten us in a lot of trouble, may have changed the course of our lives to some degree. I don't know. And I know we all have them. We should, oh, if I could just hit a button somewhere and erase those from memory. The fact that God has always been witness to even our very thoughts also means that when we're at difficult, hard times, difficult periods of our lives, the times where we're going to look back later and wonder how we made it through, those kind of days, can I just say, God's there. God's there. 
This reminder now, we do well to remember, that Satan is a spirit being too, and he's in another league, a whole different league, higher league than you and I play in, higher than ourselves. Can I also tell you this? You can't beat him on your own. You cannot beat Satan on your own. Not one of us can do that. None of us can. We can't even do it as we band together arm in arm. We can't beat him on our own. We're powerless. But I want to give you something to remember this morning. Satan is not the I am. He's not the being one. In Job, when God asks him where he's been, the devil says, well, I've been roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. That's important. Listen, here's why. Because Jesus said when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we read, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil prowls or roams about like a roaring lion. And you could ask the question, and I wish you would once in a while, why Is Satan always on the move? Why does he roam? Why does he prowl? Why does he roar? Good question. One of the best I've ever heard. Here's the answer. Because he, unlike God, can't be everywhere at once. Aren't you glad? That's a God thing. That's strictly a God thing. There may be a lot about the spiritual realm you don't fully understand, but I at least will give you this impression that just by his very nature, Satan has limits. 1 John 4, 4 summed it all up for me many years ago. And I love that verse, love that verse then, and I absolutely adore it now. Greater is he that is in you, believer, than he that is in the world. Satan is in the world. Satan is controlling certain aspects of the world today. But the living Spirit of God is alive in every believer. And that's why John said, two believers, he said, I know you're going through persecution. I know you're going to probably die for your faith. I know this is the test of all tests. But believe me, the greater is he that is in you, the living Spirit of God, than he that is in the world. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you have that victory? See, God's the one who's present. We all said together, God is there. That means he's present everywhere. He's the only one that can make that claim. So we don't have to fear. When When life shoves us into these dark places, and we just feel so alone, and we feel so cut off, We can start quoting scripture that we know well. We can say things like, even though I walk, what? Through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He's everywhere, even in the valley of the shadow. didn't say the valley of death. The valley of the shadow of death. By the way, let me just tell you, you can't have a shadow without light. And Jesus never said, oh, walk around that valley. He said, walk through it because I'm with you, even though you go through the valley called the shadow of death. It's not a death. It's a shadow. It's an illusion. Whatever time in your life you've put this to the test, whatever time you felt so beat up, maybe today is the day. We're coming into the Christmas season, and I'm not even ready for Thanksgiving yet. 
And I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. Nobody understands. Nobody, I don't think anybody cares. You're almost right. Except for this one fact. God is still there. God is still there. And he's always been there. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be driven by our fears. God is there. I've got people in this very church. We have, not I do, but all of us do as a fellowship. They listen to too many news reports. 80% of that information you're getting is wrong. People are dying all over the world. There's an awful evil force at work, and they say they're going to take us all out. I'm going to kill you. Don't threaten me with heaven. No. I have some people that are, that are literally almost shaking. They're so scared. Is John, 1 John 4, 4 true, or isn't it? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I'm going to claim that it's true. I'm going to say we don't have to be afraid. I'm going to say we don't have to be driven by fears of what's happening on the other side of the globe and might soon be happening here. I don't know. But there's one thing I know, and you've already attested to it this morning. God is there. I'm not flirting with death. I'm not flirting with my own demise. I'm not inviting people to come and chop my head off. I'm not asking for that to happen. I'm not, I don't want to, anybody that wants to be a martyr isn't a martyr. Anybody who straps dynamite to themselves and goes and blows themselves up in a bunch of people, they're not suicide bombers. They are homicide bombers. Suicide's done alone. When you attack and kill other people, that's homicide, not suicide. Well, let me come back to Psalm 139 before I miss my point altogether. I'm going to go back to the end of that psalm, and then I'm going to come right down to the start of it because it just fits so nice what I want to say here. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm uh, 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, that's a great finale to a wonderful psalm. First psalm you've ever heard preached at Christmas time, but you'll remember it, I hope. Search me. Test me. See me. Let's just say those three words. Search me. Test me. See me. One more time. Search me. Test me. See me. Usually your lips move when you're talking. Okay? All of you ventriloquists included. One more time. Search me. Test me. See me. Because no one else knows me like you. Because no one else realizes my need. You do on the basis of your greatness and my condition. So God, lead me. So let's say them. Are they on the screen? Search me. Wow, that is powerful. You guys are great. Search me. What, what comes to your mind you think of being searched? Well, I'm sorry? TSA, yeah, that's the example I was going to use. They have no idea what they're looking for, but boy, are they busy doing it. Um, 
Or if it's a police search, they're checking to see if you have something in your possession you shouldn't have. And when we go through the airports, we bemoan the fact that we have to be so thoroughly searched. When a doctor's searching for something, they put you on a scanner or through maybe even a stethoscope or a small camera goes inside your body and they look around. Is there a disease? Is there a tumor? Is there an organ that needs to be removed? Blah, blah, blah. All those things are searching. But let me just take it. Much further, when God searches us, it's not something hidden on, on our body, and it's not something to be discovered in our body. It's He searches places where no human can see. He searches out our very being. He knows exactly what's inside of us, what should and shouldn't be there. He searches us. He knows us. He's like a mother who knows the cry of a child uh, above all others. He's like a couple who knows the meaning uh, uh, just looking into each other's eyes, or like a child who knows the voice of his father. There's nothing quite as frustrating as being misunderstood. Sometimes we lack the ability to explain ourselves, I understand. Sometimes others lack the ability to understand what we're going through. That's often the case. But God searches, God knows, and he understands it all. So, again, God is there. And when we start with that fact, and that's where we started an hour ago, we have tried, and that's what I've tried to do today, when we start with that fact, everything else falls into place. And when you skip that fact, everything else falls apart. And just one more fact I'm going to leave with you, and there, that is there's a lot of people falling apart this Christmas season. They say there's a God, but he's not like the one you've been reading about here this morning. They need to say the words of this psalm with faith. They need to say, you're there, God. I'm here. It's not exactly where I want to be. This is not the there that I was hoping for. You know what I need. Please make the difference in my life. Now, will you bear with me while I read the first dozen or so verses of Psalm 139? And I want to really accentuate everything I've said this morning. So Psalm 139, starting at verse 1. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty. For me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? As we read before, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. And if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you and the night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. So this needs to be our theme for now and for these next few weeks. Encouragement, life has purpose, there's a standard of right and wrong, and there's a call to live a holy life. And a command is to fear not, but have confidence in God. There's a winning way, my friend, to enter the next 26 days. That's knowing Knowing what? Knowing God is there. That's the greatest of all truths, and it'll give you the greatest season of your life.
Christmas 2015. Emmanuel is God with us. Let's listen real carefully to the message of the song. You've come 